Amen. And all of God's people said amen. amen. Thank you, team. In the early days of this Church of the Apostles, there were people coming and going and amazing uh, the reasons for new people coming every different Sunday, some out of curiosity, some because of our unique type of worship and experience of the Lord's table. Some were just church shopping, as our culture is today. One of those experiences that in, the, in those early, early days comes under the rubric of unforgettable. Uh, it happened when a question was posed to me by a person who was contemplating membership. Uh, this lady said to me that uh, I came to check you out before I joined the church. And then she asked me a very complicated theological question. And as I listened carefully, I said, in all truthfulness, I really don't have the answer to that. The Scripture is not very clear. And then she got up in a huff and left saying, I can never belong to a church where the pastor does not have all the answers to my questions. <laughs> Later, as I contemplated and thought about it, I said, you know, I should have made a deal with her, that when she finds someone, she lets me know. I want to go to him. <laughs> On the other hand, here we are 31 years later, 30 plus years later, and we're seeing the church culture has swung now to the other extreme. That was the extreme back then. The other extreme where we see large number of evangelical churches and evangelical pastors who are saying the Bible does not have any of the answers that we need. Uh, the Bible is ambivalent about all the moral and sexual er, er, situations that we're in. The Bible is ambiguous uh, about what is right and what is wrong. Amazing how in a period of 30 years, the pendulum can swing from one extreme to the other. Those of you who lived long enough, you'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Beloved, the truth is this. God fully revealed Himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that God fully revealed Himself in His Word, that God fully revealed Himself for us in order to know what we need to know, namely that uh, we can be saved, that we can be redeemed, that we can be encouraged in our walk with Him, that we can be victorious over temptation, that we need to learn how to be obedient to Him, that He revealed to us enough to know that we can look forward to eternity in heaven with Jesus. But God did not reveal everything about Himself. We couldn't handle it <laughs> to begin with, I and mean, we couldn't handle it. Because God has always to be God, and we are not. What is happening today in the 21st century, listen to me very carefully. Our churches and our culture, Christian culture, has working doubly hard to humanize God and deify man. Now, if you haven't seen that, I can give you some examples, and I'm not going to do that here. <laughs> we have decided… <clears throat> to make ourselves equal to God. We treat God like the pal down the street. Of course, <laughs> to the believer, it is absolutely true that God calls us 
friends. And that is an incredible honor and a privilege. Jesus himself said this in John 15, 15, I call you friends. But listen to me. If you get invited to the house of the Queen of England, you don't come in there and then you put your feet on the table and say, hey, get me a cup of coffee or I'm out of here. I can assure you that attitude will not take you very far. And yet, that is literally how people are treating God now. (laughs) Some would say, and these preachers that I've heard with those ears, that we are gods with a small g. Others are willfully stripping God of His awesomeness, of His omnipotence, of His omnipresence, and of His majesty. Many of the evangelical books are coming out now saying that God does not know the future. He's just muddling His way with us. Right, what a terrible God is that. That's not my God. Still, some people treat the God of the universe, the creator of the world, like idol worshipers. If you have known some Hindus, they have the statues in in the closet, and then they bring those statues out when they need something from their God, and they place their statue, their God, their idol, and they bow, and they worship that idol, and when they finish, they put that idol back in the closet. There are some people who talk to God when they feel like it, or when they need him, and then give him the cold shoulder if he does not comply with their wishes. No longer do we reverence God and think of him in such awe of his majesty and splendor that we bow to him. You say, Michael, why are you taking time to say all these things when we're going to look at Romans chapter 11? every reason in the book I'm going to show you in a minute. Because this travesty could end up not only destroying Western civilization, for no, make, no, make no mistake about it, when the church fails, civilization fails. Romans 11 reminds us of the indescribable riches, majesty, and wisdom, and knowledge of God. Romans 11 reminds us of the absolute necessary necessity of bowing to God and, and, and bow whether we understand what we're going through or not. We bow to Him in our difficult circumstances, in our joys and in our sorrows. We bow to Him and to remember that God alone is God and we're not. That is why the key verse in Romans chapter 11 is verses 33 and 34. I want you to look with me. Because if you miss those two verses, you miss the whole chapter. You really do. (coughs) Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgment and His path beyond tracing out. Verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? And the answer is no one. Now, I want you to go home and memorize those two verses. I promise you, no matter what circumstances you go through, you memorize those two verses. Memorize them, recite them, let them bless you day in and day out. As I said, for understanding all of Romans 11 
and it looks complicated, but it is not. But to understand Romans 11, you have to understand those two verses. You have to let them seep into your, into your heart and mind and soul. If you study church history, you will discover that <clears throat> for 2,000 years, people have devised, different people have devised little theological systems. They organize the Bible in a way the Bible does not intend to be organized, does not organize itself. They have created little formulas. Well, by nature, we like that kind of thing because it makes it easier, but it's not right. <laughs> Some of these little neat systems are built around Romans 11. Today, thousands of churches have adopted this system uh, and teaching it as if it's biblical truth, but it's not. Some of these were invented by a man named John Nelson Darby, who lived in Plymouth, England in the 1800s. And in the first 1800 years of Christianity, we did not know that system. But he came up with it and would have died with him. But then another guy from America named Schofield discovered it, so he wrote, organized the whole Bible around it. It's a man-made system. Now people teach the system as if that's the Christian faith all along. It's not. That is why I plead with you Sunday after Sunday, let the Word of God speak to you. I don't care what Dr. Smelfunga says. <laughs> Read the Word of God. Let the Word speak to you. And that is why the Apostle Paul himself here does not create a system, but rather declares in verse 33 that you cannot put God in a box, that you cannot put God in a little system or a small formula. You cannot put God's plan on a chart and say, this is the way God works. No. The Pharisees did exactly this, and when the Messiah showed up, they failed to recognize Him, and they wouldn't believe in Him. They missed Him completely, and they rejected Him. So much so that Jesus said in John chapter 5, 39 to 40, He said, you diligently study the Scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about Me, and yet you refuse to believe in Me. You refuse to come to Me and have life. Among these unfathomable wisdom of God, listen to me, <laughs> among these, and these are things that are daily in my heart and in my mind. The, these are the things I don't understand about God. How can He forgive? How can He love in His wisdom? How can He love sinners like me? How can He die for sinners like me? How can He redeem sinners like me? How can He forgive sinners like me? How can He work miracles on behalf of His children? How God gives victory to His children? It's unfathomable. It's inexplainable, inexplicable. I can't explain it, can you? Hello? Well, see me at the end of the service. Your answer is yes. <laughs> Romans 11.33 is like someone who has been climbing Mount Everest. Have you ever seen one of those documentaries? It's climbing Mount I mean, step by step, painful step after painful step, and it goes on for days. And then when that person reached the summit, when he reached the top of the mountain, he looks around and says, wow, look at that beauty. 
Look at the splendor. It is indescribable. I can't put it in words. And here's what the Apostle Paul in the first ten chapters of the epistle to the Romans, in the first ten chapters, he's been crawling step by step by step about the great reality of salvation on the part of God. And then he comes to the summit. He comes to the top in verse 33 of Romans 11, and he says, God's footprint are unsearchable. God's footprints are untraceable. It only causes me to bow in awe and in wonder. In the difficult times, in the good times, I bow. I say, you are God. You are God. Now, with this brief introduction, I come to the chapter. <laughs> now, there's a reason why I took time, because without understanding this, you will not understand the rest of the chapter. If you look with me, there are three things I want you to see here in Romans 11. In verses 1 to 10, you're going to see this indescribable God, this indescribable God in his dealing with Israel in the Old Testament. Then in verses 11 to 24, you're going to see this indescribable God in his dealing with the Gentiles in the New Testament. And thirdly, verses 25 to 32, you'll see this indescribable God of grace. And his grace is indescribable. First, God is unsearchable. He is indescribable in the way he dealt with Israel in the Old Testament. Look at verses 1 to 10. In verse 1, Paul asked the question, did God permanently reject his Jewish people? And he said, absolutely no way. After all of the pain they caused him for 2,000 years, God had not rejected his Jewish people. He has not. He said, God forbid, because I'm a Jew myself. If that's the case, how, how can I be an apostle? In less than two minutes, I want to give you 2,000 years of history. Will you, are you listening? Fasten your seatbelt, okay? In less than two minutes, I'm going to give you 2,000 years of history so you understand what Paul is saying here. So many professing Christians in the 2,000 years of Christian history had this following thought pattern. Listen carefully. The Jews rejected Jesus. The Jews crucified Jesus. The Jews persecuted the followers of Jesus. Therefore, therefore, God rejected the Jews forever. Are you with me so far? Whether you agree or not, just say amen. Well, some of you have. Come on now. Did you get what I'm saying? But this is absolute fallacy. It is fallacy. Because Paul himself is a Jew. <laughs> he is saying this type of erroneous thinking began actually in the church of Rome. That's why he's writing what he's writing. This erroneous thinking started back then and continues to this day. Uh, this, this erroneous thinking is persistent. 
This type of thinking gave rise to Nazism and anti-Semitism and Hitler. Uh, this type of erroneous thinking gives, is, is behind all anti-Semitism, all of it. If you dig deep, this is the thought behind it, which is absolutely contrary and incompatible with and inconsistent with the Christian faith. Can I get an amen? Paul calls this type of argument flawed, false. What is the proof? (laughs) Paul said, I'm myself as a proof. I'm a Jew. I am now the ambassador and apostle of Christ. All of the apostles were Jewish. (laughs) 99.9% of the early church were all Jewish. Furthermore, this type of thinking runs opposite to the character of God. Today, we can look at the thousands, not tens of thousands of Messianic believers around the world, some of them my, my dear, dear friends, and you know for sure that God has not rejected the Jewish people. He has not. Please, please, please learn. I, I, I want you to hear me out on this one. To be sure, I said in the last message, because God chose Israel to be a light to the nations, that is to proclaim Yahweh to the world, and when they failed, the commission, you get that right, the commission of making God known to the world was taken from them and given to the church, the commission. But that does not mean for a moment that God completely rejected His people or rescinded His offer of salvation through the Messiah Jesus. Can you see the difference? Can you see the difference? And that is why throughout the Old Testament, the Bible speaks of the faithful remnant. The faithful remnant. Israel, as a race, inside there is a faithful remnant. Let me show you from the Word of God. This is not a system. I'm showing it to you verse by verse. i got seven references. If you're taking notes, write them down because they are important. The first one Paul mentions in Romans 11. The prophet Elijah said, God, everybody defected from you. They're worshiping Baal, and they're now following Ahab and Jezebel. They become Baal worshipers. I'm the only one who's left. And God said, no, 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 Elijah. I wrote an article to pastors some years ago. I said, don't fall. If you fall in the Elijah syndrome, don't stay there. I'm the only one. Yeah. God said, the 7,000 faithful Jews who have not bowed down to Baal or kissed him. Second reference, Amos 9.9. I know some of you say it, Amos, but it's really Amos. That's the accurate one. Amos is in South Georgia. Yeah. Amos 9.9. The Bible tells us that God has sifted Israel like corn, and all the faithful remnant remain in the sieve. All the husk has fallen through. Three, Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, God declared that this faithful remnant is His treasured possession. In Zechariah 8, 12, and 13, God declared that He will keep the faithful remnant safe. And Jeremiah 23, 3, God said the remnant will remain faithful. Number six, Ezekiel 14, 14, 
the Bible declares that the individual faithful Israelites will come to receive salvation. And then finally, Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9, we find that the faithful remnant within Israel will be saved. To say that all of the Israelites were faithful to God <laughs> would be like saying all of the church goers are born again and are believers. Are you with me? I know that's heavy stuff, but wake up. Question. What does Paul mean when he says all of Israel will be saved? From what I just showed you, the seven verses, seven references, and there are more, he is saying that the faithful remnant are the true Israel, and every one of them are going to be saved. Now you understand that whether you're studying the Old Testament or you're studying the New Testament, it is faithfulness, not ethnicity, that will save. Salvation is to whomsoever. Whomsoever. <laughs> it was, starting with Abraham, is and always will be faithfulness. Say it with me. Faithfulness. What does that mean? That relationship with God, beloved, listen to me, relationship with God is determined on an individual basis. If I look at this congregation and, and you have masses of people, a blob of people in front of me, God does not see it that way. He sees each individual. You, as an individual, is what He's focusing on. It's an individual salvation. No one is saved because they were ra raised a Baptist or Presbyterian and God help us, Episcopalian. <laughs> we don't get saved because our church background or family background or any background. <laughs> In the same way, Paul is saying, just because a person ethnically a Jew does not mean that he's a believer. But only the faithful Jews, whom the Bible calls the remnant, will be saved. Why? Because this remnant looked forward by faith like Abraham to the cross of Jesus, just as we in the New Testament look back by faith to the cross of Jesus. Let me show you from the Old Testament. Again, if you're taking notes, you can… Ezekiel, 20, Ezekiel 18.20. Ezekiel 18.20. Here's what the prophets say. You say, that's the Old Testament. Yeah. See, God is consistent. God did not change. He's a consistent God. Here's what the prophet Ezekiel said. The soul that sin, it should die. He said the children or the fathers. Or, no, the soul. Each individual. It's individual salvation. The Old Testament, New Testament. Individual salvation is both in the Scripture. God does not change. And beloved, this is the reality. Paul is telling us the fact that some individual Jews have hardened their hearts toward the Messiah does not mean that God rejected them all as a race. No way. What Paul is saying about the hardness of their hearts is a sobering it's sobering. Listen to me. It's sobering to the Jews and to the Gentiles, to every one of us. It's sobering. Verses 7 to 10, there is a universal principle here that you must take to heart, and you'll make a mistake if you don't. 
what is it? If anyone keeps on hearing the truth and refuses to respond to the truth, the time will come when that person will be incapable of responding. This ought to make us weep over the lost. If somebody here or listening, watching anywhere, you've been hardening your heart and hardening your heart, and you know the truth, and God's speaking to you, there's going to be a time when that's going to be difficult for you to respond. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 13, 12. Listen to what Jesus said. Whoever has will be given more and will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, he, what he has will be taken away from him. There are some who thinks, you know, they can lie and cheat and live any which way all week long. As long as they go to Mass or go to church on Sunday, everything is fine. No. No, beloved. Paul is saying there is a spiritual danger that can develop in the life of such a person, in the life of this type of person, and it is called spiritual callousness. What breaks my heart as a pastor in the past 31 years is I've known people who sat under the Word of God for years, and then they turned their back on that same Word of God. That breaks my heart. I'm glad I'm alone when I pray. (laughs) You see, the indescribable God in His dealing with stubborn Israel, that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you see this indescribable God in His dealing with the Gentiles. Look at verses 11 to 24. First 11 to 16, you see Paul makes an incredible statement regarding the sovereignty of God. He really does. When the Jew becomes callous and indifferent and spiritually insensitive toward the Messiah, what does God do? What does God do? He uses that same callousness, that same insensitivity toward the voice of God to bring Gentiles to be saved and into salvation and into knowledge of Jesus Christ, who is the Jewish Messiah. Why? To provoke the Jews in order to provoke them into jealousy, and they want to come to their Messiah. Just because the Jews refused the good news… It does not mean that God washes His hands. No. Just because they refuse to know, that to, to accept the good news, that the fact that all of their book, every book in the Old Testament has prophesied about, the fact they refuse to listen to the fact that their faithful remnant waited for, longing for, uh, expectant, and they didn't, it doesn't mean that God permanently rejected them, as some people say. Now, it is offered to those who did not have the privilege of the covenant and the relationship that the Jews had with God. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard a professing Christian try to blackmail God? I have. God, if you don't do this for me, I'm out of here. Right? 
I'm out of here. Poor saps, you know, really when you think about it. And that's what Paul is saying here. <laughs> they don't know the grace of God. I know people who do this with churches. They do this with ministries. And unless you do this, I'm out of here. Uh, we do this with politicians. That's fine. You can do that with politicians. <laughs> it's all right. But not with God. Not with God. It doesn't work that way with the indescribable, unfathomable, almighty, all-powerful, El Shaddai God. Please, every time you are tempted to do this, take a deep breath and recite Romans 11.33. All the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Here's some lingo that you hear among evangelicals. And don't want, I don't want anyone here but the sound of my voice ever fall for this. Don't ever think that God is fortunate to have you as a follower of Jesus. <laughs> don't ever fall for that. I've heard it. I've heard it. God blessed you out of your socks <laughs> by accepting you as his child when you came to him. Look at verse 11, all the way to 16 again. When you are tempted to feel high and mighty toward an unbelieving Jew, or when you are tempted to look down on an unbelieving Jew because they've rejected Christ, remember three things. Remember three things. It was through the rejection that you've been accepted. Your salvation should make a Jew jealous to turn to their Messiah. And thirdly, when a, Jewish, a Jew believes in Jesus, his Messiah, it is a greater riches to the world. It really is. Most of you know, I'm a practical person. I'm giving you the theology. Of course, I have to be faithful to the text, but I always love to bring it all the way so that everybody can get it, young and old. I was speaking to a group of pastors in Philadelphia, and then they, my host got up, and he said, I love listening to Michael on the radio. He's on the radio. He said, <laughs> he said what he always does, he takes the, the jar of cookie and brings it all the way to the lower shelf so everybody can reach it. <laughs> so I hope that's the case. I, I pray that's the case. I want to tell you this to explain what I'm trying to say, or at least I'm trying to explain the Word of God. Many years ago, over 30 now, it's actually more than 35 years ago, 40 years ago, there was a, a Christian student, law student at Mercer University. And then, lo and behold, he discovered that his roommate was a Jewish man from New York. I mean, he was New Yorker. And he comes in the room, he looks at his Christian friend, he sees the Bible, and he says, listen to me. If you don't give me that Jesus stuff, you and I are going to get along just fine. Here's what the Christian student did. He said, I make you a promise. You'll never hear me talk to you about Jesus. Accept the challenge. And so he didn't. That went on for a few months. The Christian student just kept reading the Word of God, kept studying the Word of God, kept living his life for Christ. Finally, 
the Jewish student, just couldn't take it anymore. I mean, he just couldn't take it. That curiosity killed the cat. I think the curiosity almost killed this guy. And he said, okay, tell me. He said, no, 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 no. We made an agreement. Huh? <laughs> he said, tell me about you. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. I made you a promise. I keep my word. He kept urging him, tell me about Jesus. Finally, he said to him, no, but I'm going to tell you to do two things for me. Go and read the passages in Isaiah about the suffering servants. You know what I'm talking about? It was like a sheep led to the slaughter and all the uh, uh, suffering servants' passages in Isaiah. And when you've finished on that, you can go and read the Gospel of Matthew. If you come to the conclusion that they're talking about the same person 750 years apart, one 750 years before and one 750 years later, then we can talk. So my friend goes in there and reads those passages, comes back. A few weeks later, I said, I get it. They're talking about the same person. He said, okay. Within days, the Jewish student knelt before his Messiah, Jesus, and received him as Savior and Lord. And that person is no other than my dear friend, Jay Sekulow of the law, Center for Law and Justice. Beloved, I believe with all my heart, and look how much Jay blessed the world. Just think about it. This is what Paul is saying, that when they come, they bless the world. And, and here, here is what I really believe with all my heart, that Paul would have said, had Paul been standing there in that room, or has been standing in this pulpit telling you this, he would have said, Guy, that's what I'm trying to tell you in Romans 11. That's exactly what I'm trying to tell you. That's exactly what I'm trying to explain to you. A Gentile believer provoked a Jewish man into believing in his Messiah, and he enriched the world. The sad part is, in fact, Jay and I talked about this several times. Jay preached here, by the way, several times here. And Jay and I talked about this. Here's the sad part. Some false teachers are running around and saying, a Jew does not need to be converted to Christ or believe in Christ to be saved. False teachers. False preachers. I wanted to tell this to the tens of thousands of Messianic Jews in Europe and United States and in Israel, many of whom are my dear friends. Beloved, God has provided only one way for salvation, and it's through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Amen. And I'm blessed to have some Jewish friends, and I often tell them, I owe you. I owe you Jesus. You gave me Jesus. One of them asked me, just went to be with the Lord. I went to his funeral at the temple that he used to say to me, why do you love me so much? I said, because you have the foundation on which my faith is built. Question. What about that olive tree? Listen carefully. Listen carefully. The root of the olive tree is the faith of Abraham. The trunk of the tree is the Lord Jesus Christ. The church made up branches of both Jewish and Gentile believers. 
the Gentile believers were grafted in, but the Jewish believers in Jesus, they were the natural branches. Did you get it? Did you get it? Good, thank you. You see, our indescribable God, you see Him clearly in dealing with the Jews in the Old Testament, and you see Him, incredible God, clearly in the way He deals with grace with the Gentiles. And thirdly, finally, you see our indescribable God, the God of grace. Verses 25 to 32. Verse 25 says, don't be uninformed. Actually, most translations, old translations said, don't be ignorant. You know, there's nothing worse than an uninformed person thinking that he or she is an expert on something. But you know what, you, what I found out in my experience, what's worse? A person who's half-informed. <laughs> they're dangerous. They're dangerous. They really are. When they just get, have partial information. Bad information or half-information can only lead to false pride, and it will lead to conceit. <laughs> and the complete antidote to pride is the truth, objective truth. Biblical truth. The Jew cannot despise the Gentile because they both are made in God's own image. And a Gentile cannot despise a Jew for Judaism is the very foundation of the Christian faith. And both can only be saved by God's mercy through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Talking about pride, I was thinking about this politician who went to a photographer, and he said, I want you to really do a very good portrait of me. This is going to hang in a very prominent place. I want you to really work hard and give me a good portrait. And so finally, a few days later, he came and the photographer handed him the proof. He looks at the proofs and he said, this picture does not do justice for me. And the photographer looked at him and said, sir, with a face like yours, you don't need justice, you need mercy. Beloved, that can be said of all of us, all of us. None of us can boast about anything. None of us can brag about anything. We're all sinners and deserving of hell. Verse 31, but God's mercy is exercised toward us who are disobedient. Jews or Gentiles, how? Because only the mercy of God can rescue us from the consequences of disobedience, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Salvation for all of humanity has no regard of ethnicity. It is only based on the merits of Jesus Christ and this cross. Listen to me. I'm going to say something I have never, ever addressed before, but I will do it now because it's, it's really burning inside of me. This whole issue of racism that people are exploiting, that people are using to divide us, this whole issue of racism can only end when hearts are bent toward the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. Listen, listen to me. There is no program that can end racism. 
There is no funding that can end racism. There is no education that can end racism. Nothing can change a heart from hate to love other than the blood of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Beloved, the ground is level at the mercy seat of Christ. None of us have anything to brag about. None of us has anything to boast about or feel better than somebody else. No. This is the gospel. This is the Christian faith. This is our only plea. And the door is wide open to everyone who repent of their sins, regardless of who they are. Beloved, this is the glory of the Christian faith. Amen? Will you stand up with me, please? I always give an opportunity, and you can do it in the privacy of your own seat. If you're a person who carrying hate in your heart and profess to know Jesus, you need to repent of it. In fact, anything that you're boasting about in your life, you need to surrender it to Jesus because the only thing you have to boast about is the cross of Jesus Christ. Take a moment. Dear Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry for the way I treated you, the way I treated you, God. You've been my Savior, you've been my Lord, you've been full of grace toward me. And yet somehow I felt there is something in me that did this. But I thank you that it is your blood shed on the cross. That grace, the merits of Christ is what eternally saved me and saves me. If you're a person who've never come to Christ, that this is an opportunity. Lord Jesus, I surrender to you. Either way, at the end of the service, you can come talk to me and my fellow pastors here in this church will be up front. Father, your word said that you did not leave yourself without a witness. I don't know how to thank you for the clarity of your word that you have given us. I don't know how to thank you for your grace, your mercy that humbles us. And Lord, I may not understand this fully until I get to heaven. How can a holy, righteous God can love a sinner like me? I thank you for that grace. And I bow to you. And I pledge the rest of my life to lift up that beautiful name, the name of Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand, continue to stand to sing together.